Sup y'all, it's Steven, the host, creator, producer, director, and bar dude behind Wayward Muse. I am so stoked and thankful to be presenting season two of the podcast series. We go all over, from Vegas to Canada and back to Chicago, to bring you insights into sustainability, techniques, and longevity in the industry. Let's dive in. Richard Beltzer is a Chicago industry professional who has led programs around the city, notably Bad Hunter and currently the lead bartender at Monteverde. He is also the brand ambassador for Santa Teresa Rum. So much to cover with him. Welcome to Wayward News. Ah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, anyone who's in the industry knows this year has been just as wild as the last one with pivots going in the right direction. And now finally, Chicago has just recently reopened full capacity, no restrictions. Everyone threw their masks away. What has the last weekend been like for you? I mean, it's 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 like, uh, you know, it's twofold. It's exciting to see, you know, you know, if, especially if you worked the growing steps into where it came like from that. So whether it was 25% capacity or outdoor only and all that, seeing like, I just think like the smiles, the energy of having just a full bar, there's a lot of joy in that. On the flip side too, it's like, uh, you know, we're all, there's a lot of training to be happening. Some places are finding difficult to find staff and and whatnot. So it is a little crazy. And at the moment it feels like everyone just kind of permanently in the weeds, if you, if you Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying. Uh, But I think overall it's a, it's exciting. Yeah. Especially with the, at least Chicago has definitely had a, a change where it doesn't seem as there as many industry professionals clamoring to grab jobs for front of house. I haven't had any trouble for hiring, but it's, it seems like the back of house we've had a lot of uh, talent leave for other industries. Yeah, no, I, no, I completely agree. You know, even too, it's, I think, which, and rightfully so, I think a lot of people both on the front of house and the back of house, you know, maybe they're finding work that better suits themselves or to, you know, whether it's not that specific restaurant or bar that they were working prior, but somewhere where they can maybe spread their wings a little more or, or feel like they've, you know, it falls or aligns with uh, what they're, you know, really trying to gravitate to. Yeah. Have you had any struggles at Monteverde finding the right staff to be able to support a full reopen? Uh, No, not at all. I will say that, you know, with any like restaurant bar or just restaurant in general, it's like training, of course, isn't just like, all right, you know, you know, here one day behind the bar, you kind of got it right. And then, then, you know, Mm -hmm. day two, they're live. It's so our training is just a little more, um, um, you know, knowledgeable and takes a little more uh, time. So at the time we decided that 100% capacity was going to make sense. I would say that 25% of the staff on the floor is training and or will be, you know, you know, ready to go within a week or so. So I, it was, it was nice to have, you know, the extra bodies and just in general, like, you know, having, you know, the support, but at the same time, we, we kind of dialed back our outdoor seating and just kind of continued the amount of seats, but just put them inside mm-hmm. to be like, let's train first and then we can, then we can open the floodgates once, uh, once we got the appropriate staff. So not, not really an issue. It just maybe like, you know, we, I think we all thought like, all right, July, around the July 4th weekend, we'll probably be around a hundred percent. And then literally lo and behold, like the next day, mm-hmm. everyone blinked and it was like hundred percent. And you're like, Oh, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And that's going from a hundred percent to like, people are not allowed. We were at a point where like people weren't even allowed out of their seats 
sure to interact so there's like a huge culture shift with how you're going to deal with people I, could you talk to everyone about uh monteverde as a concept so they can kind of get an idea of yeah what yeah, things you're sure. working with so um it's called monteverde pastaficio and i think the best thing about it is that sarah our chef she wants to create the experience of pasta being as fresh as possible you know even during the pandemic and today you know uh, a large portion of all restaurants are doing a lot of to-go food and what sarah would do is she would plate and uh, you know wrap up your to-go food as fresh as possible it was such a you know, military system, especially when we're only at 25% capacity of how we did to go. And it's, it's such an honor to work for her. But uh, yeah, the concept of her is just being able to incorporate some Italian uh, cookings, both from her heritage, from her family, as well as her visits from Italy that she has done, but also incorporate just, you know, a chef's perspective, uh, her specific perspective on uh, dining and just overall culture. What I really love about Monteverde is that, you know, it's a neighborhood restaurant. So she's just trying to bring, you know, just like in Italy, that, that joy and that, uh, you know, you're, you feel like you walk in in your family um, concept uh, to life. And so she does that to every little degree. There's a lot of little touches both on the menu and in general, her perspective of hospitality uh, that just brings that neighborhood family orientation to life. Yeah, you can really feel it when you walk in too. I mean, as you know, I recently went in for my birthday and it was just yeah. an amazing experience to be able to sit down and taste that crisp in the that you get from fresh pasta. It just blows right. your mind every time. It's like every single bite there is perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, I and I love it too because it's, you know, she, you know, first coming on as far as even the, the beverage program, she was like, you know, Italian classics are a little, they're a little abrupt, not not in a bad way, but, you know, sometimes like, you know, a Negroni or any of those like really hard, bitter uh, mm-hmm. ideologies, even Amaro is, is sometimes harder to grasp in America. And not that it's a bad thing. I just think that astringently bitter flavors are sometimes a bartender's handshake rather than like, a you know, your average guest's handshake. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there's it's been fun to be able to play around with uh, making it more approachable and, and uh, you know, just sharing that knowledge of just Italian classics, too. Yeah, what's your process like with that? With like, so, so you're dealing with you know an, an Italian spirits focused menu. Is there certain steps or that you've noticed help you try to make some of those more bitter flavors relatable? Sure. Yeah. No. I, so what I kind of do, and even just like formalizing cocktails, is you know highlighting Italian uh, Italian spirits, whether it's you know aperitivos or even Italian wines or you know digestifs and stuff like that. And then, of course, you know, as, as a lot of bartenders do, it's just using foundational classics is a, a kind of a rough framework, but then being mm-hmm. able to, you know, play with acidity and sweetness and, and kind of, you know, look at, a, uh, look at it as a chef would. So I kind of also work at what's in the season, what, what could work right now, like what mm-hmm. is chef also working with? Are they, or is, you know, is there anything that they're using that they have the scraps of that I can like repurpose, you know, and that... That comes from, you know, working at Bad Hunter for a long time, that kind of way of thinking how to build a cocktail, but also, mm. too, just like, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, Italian spirits are, they're bold, they're, they're going to hit you in the face, and that's okay. Uh, to kind of be able to complement them in a more approachable way, I just, you know, there's a lot of other uh, supportive spirits and wine that, you know, Rob, our wine director, um uh, has a lot of passion for it. So we just, it's a, it's kind of just a round table way of thinking for when it comes to drinks. 
That's refreshing to hear that, you know, you're playing with everything that's available in the restaurant because waste has been one of those things that I think is becoming more and more noticeable in our industry. Do you have any, from your time at Bad Hunter, you know, do you have any advice for people looking to lower their footprint behind the bar? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, my my thing is, you know, the big thing we did at Bad Hunter was we had this uh, framework of two things. So it was uh, functional sustainability and kill your giants. And so two two of those things kind of go hand in hand. So functional sustainability, we, we always wanted to be, you know, what is the kitchen using? What are they using? You know, like, look, for example, if they're using the juicing oranges, I know, very simple. What are they doing with those peels? Or on a little more complicated level, you know, they are, uh, they've got radishes and they're juicing radishes, but what could you do with the radish pulp? Um, however, the functional part comes from it is that, you know, the word sustainability gets tossed around a lot and not in a bad way. I think that a lot of people, you know, want to create things that are sustainable and then be able to repurpose things. But sometimes too, especially uh, this makes the R&D process for cocktails very important is that you have to have a purpose for that sustainability or else you're just creating more things that then eventually will get wasted. So mm-hmm. I think I think a bigger thing is we, we just used really what the kitchen was using and then using that as a framework of how we can incorporate those that into our cocktails, whether it was herbs or vegetables or produce or you know, anything even the pastry was using, um, mm-hmm. you know, we, we'd go far as nerding out that at that Hunter, uh, you know, the pastry was making pasta and then we use the pasta water as a dilution component to a cocktail on the menu. And we are like, if we put pasta water on the menu, this is just like, quote unquote, to mixology. And you know what? I was so, I was so surprised people would order it. Not in a, mm-hmm. like a, you don't have to be a bartender to order this drink, but you know, it's just like, I think people were just more intrigued to be like, okay, it just says pasta water, like, give it a try. Um, and so, you know, kind of circling back is like what I would really encourage for sustainability is that having some sort of direction with it first, you know, thinking of like, what is what is already being wasted at the moment? So you're not mm-hmm. creating more waste. How you could use it in certain, whether it's infusions or you know, turning it into like tisane or tea, you know, especially if you have just a couple different things that they, you know, that um, either the kitchen's using or the bar's using. And then three, just tactfully using, it doesn't need to necessarily be classics, but having a framework for a cocktail first and then being, a, being able to be like, all right, I need more citrus in this cocktail. Wait, I have all these citrus peels from, you know, previous nights because we, you know, cut our citrus peels fresh every day. What could I do with those previous citrus peels? And so what I do at Monteverde is our Negroni on the menu is that same thing. It's like, you know, we, we pre-cut our, you know, lemon and orange peels for, you know, old fashions and, you know, classics for cocktails. And then at the end of the night, we put them with a damp towel so they keep their moisture in a, mm-hmm. you know, container. And then I infuse it with just Campano sweet vermouth. And then I just use that as the sweet vermouth component in our Negroni. And what it does is it, it, it really softens up that, stringent bitter that you would get you know that a classic negroni it makes things a lot more citrusy and bright and then you know again it's just like a i've never had a negroni before well i'll I'll give you a classic and then i'll give you this i think you'll love both but i think you'd be like no i can see what you mean with the you know the negroni it's called the orange negroni or orange negroni in italian Mm -hmm. um you you could be like oh i see what you mean um so you know that's what i would encourage and then real quick on that second part too is uh 
you know, I said kill your giants. We we kind of came up with this term coll- collectively as a as a group. But one of our former bartenders, his name is Brandon Thrash. He uh, now lives in Philly. He'd always be like, kill your giants. And what that means is that when you have something great for a good amount of time, you at one point in time that didn't exist. And being able to create something to then beat that said amazing thing, you know, like, you know, at uh, Monteverde, Chef Sarah had the Cacio Pepe. And mm-hmm. when she took it off the menu, everyone's like running for the hills, like ready to protest. And, you know, you have to be able to be like, I had a great dish or I have a great cocktail. Let me fight it a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And then you can use those functionally sustainable terms or just, you know, being able to just use some of the knowledge and be like, how can I beat that next best thing? Yeah, I've heard that. It, uh, it seems to be a theme that's running through a lot of concepts that are very successful. Um, and one of the first podcasts I did with Josh Harris of Trick Dog, yeah. he said he, he wants to give people enough time to build relationships with drinks and then when it's time for the season to flip completely change their perspective so that way they can come back to the concept fresh and i thought that that was such an interesting way of trying to view how people interact with a community space like a restaurant or a bar yeah for sure i agree yeah and i think it that lends a lot to people's trust in the place too because like you said, like that Cacio Pepe disappeared, but it's almost like a safe thing sometimes where guests would, if you leave something on a menu for a couple of years, they're just going to come back and order that one thing and never see right. something that could, you know, expound their understanding of Italian cuisine in mm-hmm. a new direction. Exactly. I completely take that. That's given, that's given me food for thought. Cause it's uh-huh. all like people keep asking me like, Oh, when are you going to change the menu again? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> well, and it's too, it's, I think it's just a great footprint to be able to, you know, that, that really true idea of mentorship, I think is, 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 uh, it's like my, it's what I think the mo- is most important in, in our, in our industry is that, you know, let's say you're sous chef or your head, you know, next head, head bartender or whoever's up in line and, you know, this is a great way to be able to like, give them a framework and then being able to be like, this is what you need to try to reach mm-hmm. you or, or like, let's do it together. And like, let's see how we can make this next best thing. And uh, yeah, it's just always interchangeable. We got to know that like our industry and food and drinks is always changing. There's always going to be that, you know, home restaurant or bar that will always have the same thing. And even like, you know, big, you know, progressive restaurants and bars, there'll always be maybe that staple dish that never leaves the menu too, but Mm-hmm. You got to try, you got to really try to like flip the switch a little bit because then it just makes things more exciting too to be able to bring other efforts into it or just, you know, something new. So speaking of cocktail development, when you like, let's say, I know you have a little bit of a, you know, a precise uh, direction you have to move with Monteverde, but in your own time, is there a certain thing you like to play with cocktail wise in the sense of, uh, from a creation standpoint? Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple things. So when it comes to cocktails for me, um, and, and maybe it's just more recently, I mean, I'm not old by any means, I'm only 32, but um, mm-hmm. acidic 
cocktails, a number of them just start to give me acid reflux. And to be honest with you, it's kind of hard to like try to play with a lot of acidic cocktails, which is sad because it's like, is this mm-hmm. just a sign of getting older or just had many two acidic cocktails in the past? But yeah, you know, those daiquiris, they add up over the years. Right. I was just literally going to say, I know I have daiquiri tattooed on me, but it's like, maybe it's just like now more in my blood than anything else. Um, I think, uh, on the, yeah, as far as like how I approach cocktails, even at home or just away from Monteverde is I lean towards more of the stirred element and I lean towards like really delicate flavors and how to play on that. Mm -hmm. Um, and if it's not that, then I really play on the, the highball kind of, um, route. Um, my favorite cocktail is an Americano, coincidentally enough, it's an Italian cocktail, but anything in that kind of ballpark, you know, even like the traditional Japanese whiskey highball or and being able to play with delicate flavors like that. Uh, I really love uh, going back to like the stirred realm. I, uh, I just love all, almost all stirred cocktails, whether, you know, they're crazy bitter, like a Toronto or in Toronto is crazy bitter, but you know, like mm-hmm. going in that realm of Toronto's or even just going like old pals when you're incorporating some aperitivo or you know, mm-hmm. using that route. Um, I love just like using those as frameworks and then being able to play with, you know, there's so many supportive spirits out there that are unknown. And, you know, again, coincidentally enough, a lot of them are Italian, like liqueurs and supportive spirits, but there's also a lot of French and Spanish supportive yeah. spirits. Um, I just love being able to, you know, split base here or use a little mm-hmm. of this, use a little of that and just kind of incorporating delicate flavors and how they layer to each other and, it's kind of just like how I like to drink, to be honest with you. Yes, especially when you split base things. It just it's fun to see when those two different spirits kind of just like meld and play around really nicely right. together. And then sometimes it'll be things that you never suspected would do exactly. that. Like if if you combine like oh I'll use Batavia Rock and this aged drum, and then suddenly you have like bold cinnamon out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You're like how the, how the fuck did that get in there? <laughs> and then just yeah. No, so I, I, yeah, I love that. Batavia Rack is one of my favorites, so I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, it's so delicious. Um, I did like a tapache. Like speaking of sustainability, I did. Um, I had like the leftover pulp from tapache, so I oh, just yeah. threw all of that pulp uh, over Batavia Rock, and that's what where that crazy cinnamon flavor came in. I didn't even put cinnamon in the uh, the tapache; oh, just yeah. popped out because of I think the yeasts would be my only guess but yeah yeah well and then, yeah just like kind of how like the velvety neediness that you'd get from like batavia rack maybe just like mm-hmm. place with that rum so for sure you had mentioned that there are some unknown spirits you know a lot of times from italy and france i feel like italy is like one of these super mysterious places i mean i've been there twice and every time i'll see a bottle of um, amari that i've never seen before and be like and i'll try it and there'll be flavors i did not know existed within the italian palette are there some things that you've discovered recently or in your time working for monteverde that you'd like to cue people into yeah you know even like hitting the amara route you know my, one of my favorite things i do with guests especially if they just had a lot of pasta or a lot of you know when i can i've seen the i'm full face is pretty common at monteverde just because mm-hmm. it's like you know they just they're so excited for each bite and then they have to finish it and they're like too full so i you know introducing amari to people is one of my favorite things to do and what i usually do is you know i go from both ends so i go like you know maybe i give them like amari nonino montenegro Mm -hmm. being a little lighter sweeter butterscotchy not strangely bitter and then i'll throw in like maybe like braglio or nardini amaro or something on that or you know 
something on that end, uh, you know, Mara De Monti or something like that, and showed them like the perspectives of Amaro. But in that mm-hmm. in that progression, I have found some just some stuff even in the middle and and some stuff that I didn't even know. So there's this product called Le Peritivo Nonino. And to be honest with you, I don't know too much of words uh, about the product itself. Mm-hmm. But I know that as far as Amari, if I told you it wasn't Amari, you'd be like, this is just a really nice, you know, like well-rounded fortified wine. Almost kind of like a lighter sweet vermouth. Um, so I've seen a lot of that uh, as well. Like kind of even just like moving into the vermouth category. I think that vermouth is so so interesting as well so you know you have your big houses that i dear and love like carpano and dolan and stuff like that that will always be around and any pretty notable cocktail bar or just in general like you know they get great vermouths uh even like the martini series like their newer series like the umbrato and the bitter and all that stuff is delicious um but i found you know some smaller house vermouths just like again like smaller house wine that i find really interesting so there's a vermouth out there called uh, Volume Primo. And uh, coincidentally enough, uh, an old friend of mine uh, is a partner in that wine company uh, okay. from Italy. So he's from Veneto. Uh, he owns a bar called Amaro, uh, coincidentally enough. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, he helped produce this, you know, this vermouth. And his sweet vermouth is great. It's like savory. It kind of has, you know, we have talked before uh, about radishes. It has a very like herbaceous kind of radishy feel to it. And, uh, it's but it's still like sweet at the beginning, savory and salinic at the end, and um, I just I love that. You know, you'd ask me kind of like where I like to drink and like where my mind goes with stuff too. Is like I I could stick in like the low ABV realm of life and also be very mm-hmm. content and happy. And so I I think that vermouths are something that if you aren't taking enough time at your bar or restaurant to look more into, I encourage you to do because there's some smaller houses out here coming, coming for those bigger houses that I think that will do some really good things moving forward. And I really love to see that this, cause like you can, there is a trap within the industry that a lot of people may not know about where if you order from certain, you know, these huge, uh, you know, liquor producers, they'll be like, yeah, if you buy three cases, you get this one free. And you're like, then you get in this trap of like, oh, the cost is so great. I want right. to keep it. And then it keeps you from being able to explore. Um, right. Speaking of La Aperitivo Nonino, I, I guess it's from Friuli, ah. which is a really great wine region. And it is the Nonino family who makes that same grappa. I love everything that, no, everything that at least that I've tried of no Nino, I think is spectacular. Right. They're all great. I love them all. Yeah. Like that one birthday, you know, I was like, what, 23? And someone was, gave me like, you need to try this as a Mauro No Nino Quintessentia. And uh-huh. I could just remember my brain exploding, all these little like mice <laughs> just freaking out over the right. flavor. When I think, what's... go ahead. Oh, I, I didn't have anything. Go for it. <laughs> what, I, what I was saying is that what I think actually is quite interesting too is that classic, you know, from, you know, foundational classics some of them do incorporate amaro and again i think like amaro is important i think it's a it's a it's definitely a you know even for like newer restaurants bars i just highly encourage that people take a little more look into amaro because not like it it can really just put that little touch but it's just great great stuff great stuff yeah i definitely think it deserves to be one of like the foundational categories that every bar should have a few of i wanted to go over take a little segue people may not know this about you but uh, i want to let them know that you're also a huge into photography um i've seen a lot of your um 
stuff on Instagram and it's just the shots are so well composed. Usually with creative types, there is always this interesting play where you have a couple different passions and then because you invest so much time in those things, they begin to meld. Uh-huh. Is that true for you? And if so, how does that work for you? You're right. You know, I think creativity just kind of bounces off one another. If you can kind of incorporate a couple of things in your life. But for me, I like, I never, maybe in the last four years, I took photography a little more seriously. Mm-hmm. I always loved shooting through a lens. I just think it's a great way to cap. Of course I capture the moment, but to like, a, a photo just like any other art is an art piece you know you can be able mm-hmm. to like look at perspective and just see kind of you know angles and compositionary and stuff like that so i think again like maybe even two years ago i you know started buying a little more camera equipment and, mm-hmm. and thinking like how you know when i travel or just like being able to like just see an important idea or message you know during the pandemic there was just a lot of a lot of things that we were fighting for, for everyone, you know, whether it was the Black Lives Matter movement and equal rights Mm -hmm. or, you know, just in general, just our like freedoms. And I find, you know, looking even just like all the photos that we're taking during our time, just such powerful imagery, that stuff, it's not new. I mean, photos Mm -hmm. like that have, and history like this just repeats itself. And, and I think that uh, if you can, you know, anyone can take a photo, but like, I think that if you really look, look into a photo, it helps your better idea of well, what you're taking and what the, what the image means to you. But how I like put it in perspective of, of cocktails and drinks is that, yeah, you know, it honestly, it started for me as like a framework and being like, how, how can I like document some of the cocktails that I've made or put on menus? Mm-hmm. So I just started taking photos of them. And, you know, to you, it's just like, I, in my life, I've, I've done a lot of different things, but until it becomes a job, I still continue to love it. And so I think that's a big reason why I love photography is that I have, I can schedule my own stuff for it. It's like, it's my own canvas. I can do my own things with it rather than having it to be like, you know, not that I, I wouldn't love it if, if it was a job and I have done mm-hmm. some projects in the past, but it's, uh, I think that's why I love it the most when it, it aligns more with what I work because hospitality is, is hands down my 150% passion in life mm-hmm. and mentoring and, and being there for the future of our industry. Like that is, I'll put everything on that. Um, but it's a great way to be able to document and storybook kind of parts of my life is with the, with a lens and uh, even more, you know, nerding out about a lot more of the photography during the pandemic, you know, doing a lot of reading and studying under some famous photographers and just, just even looking through like time magazine and just seeing some of the really like just perspectives that photographers have put into that you would, you know, you wouldn't see is, it's just quite nice to pretty just like put some passion into. So I love it. To continue to geek out. um, I've also begun to, because it's almost time for, you know, me to start picking locations for season two to actually record video for, And as I'm like researching and watching like other travel shows or other food shows, that sense of perspective of like telling a story through some of the still shots that people get. It's so interesting because there was this one where someone just followed a cat, but it was in the middle of like a food story because they followed the cat. And this is just, you know, and you're thinking about it, you know, this is just 
some guy with the camera on set who sees a cat running by and is like, this would be cool. He flips his camera, like I'm just imagining what he did. He flips his camera upside down on his gimbal, follows that cat around, and then suddenly you get a sense of like traveling through this market in um, Indonesia. Wow. And I, yeah, Crazy. and I was like, it also made me feel bad too because I was like, I would have never thought of that, I, you know? No. Well, and too, like, uh, and a little like, small plug for equal parts cocktails, but my, uh, my friends uh, out of San Francisco, they're twins. Um, they, you know, they do this thing called equal parts cocktails. So I encourage it, like check them out on Instagram, but mm -hmm. it's, it's very, you know, I was watching some of the video work that, you know, you do and, and in general, just some of the stuff and the translation is the same as like, you know, these, of course, like, especially with like, you know, Netflix and all this stuff of like food and drink, just being all over it, which I pay, I'm, I'm all here for it, mm -hmm. but it is such, I mean, I could, I could just stare at the artwork and the music and the, you know, composition of that all mm -hmm. uh, for forever. You know, it's like, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, you know, when's the next X show coming out? You know, when are you going to watch the next episode? No, I just, I could just stare at that for all the time. And I think that a lot of people, you know, on, on that platform and in general too, even starting smaller on social media are doing an amazing job at it. And it is such a, it's just a great way to look at things. I mean, that's why our industry is front facing in front of a lot of things. You know, I, mm -hmm. I love it. You know, I'm all here for it. Yeah. Could you talk more about this equal parts? You, you, you intrigued me. In, uh, yeah. Um... Yeah. So uh, equal parts cocktail um, is two bartenders. They're twins. Uh, and what they do is they, they really show um, it's Emilio and Miguel is their name. Um, and mm -hmm. they recently took on a third partner, um, Anthony. Uh, but, you know, they really just show, if you want to see perspective, not only as a guest, but like an artistic perspective of how a drink is made. And I know that like some people don't really use this as a framework or when they go to a busy restaurant or bar, but I, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I can, maybe can relate to this. It's like wherever you're at in the world, when you travel and you just have that like aha moment where you like, you know, the bartenders have the dance almost chore you know, like yeah. choreographed to a science behind the bar and it's silent. The music is just perfect. The food, the moment with your partner or whoever you're with is great. Those moments will like last forever and you'll always remember those moments. But I feel like what these brothers do is that they can capture that into a video and and showing that it's just it's more than just recording someone bartending. And mm -hmm. uh I I love it. I mean I have a couple of videography works that I've done myself. Uh, and there's another thing that I like picked up during the pandemic that I definitely want to continue to uh, work on and, and push forward with. But uh, man, it's, it is such a, it's a, another artistic way to really like look at our industry. And so, yeah, that's, they've just created a, they've got a website and an Instagram handle, but again, it's a, a, at uh, equal underscore parts underscore cocktail. And I just, uh, I highly take a look. They're just some badass bartenders making some great stuff. And not to put this last, but I thought, you know, finish with a nice little button. We, we haven't even covered the fact that you're also the, one of the brand ambassadors for Santa Teresa rum. Yeah. We, um, should, pro we should probably let the people know more about that product because it's <laughs> delicious. Uh, thank you. Um, so yeah, about three, four years ago, almost, um, at my time about Hunter Ice, I also took on a part-time brand ambassador role with Santa Teresa. And, um, if you don't know, Santa Teresa is a Venezuelan rum, 
Um, they have a few SKUs, but I only actually cover their most age rum called 1796. Mm-hmm. So it's a blend of rum between four and 34-year-old rum aged in a Solera, some other like really nerdy concepts of the rum, but at the same time, it's it's a lot of pride from Venezuela. So it was the very first uh, rum distillery established. They have a project called Project Alcatraz, which they, you know, they use both rugby and uh, work in the distillery and other uh, um, concepts to be able to reform some of the people in Venezuela, some of the people who are like working on getting out, out, off the streets and, Mm-hmm. And trying to, you know, Venezuela is not the, you know, it's still kind of dealing with some political and dangerous, um, you know, socioeconomic issues. And so uh, this is just a platform for, uh, you know, a rum distillery to be able to kind of show this identity of team and bring together a great thing. But the rum itself as well, it's, you know, it's, uh, I think being an ambassador was interesting because you wanted to, you know, at some point as a bartender, you you want to do more than, bartend right of course so mm-hmm. whether you go into bar management or ownership or you go into the brand sides of things um what you know whether you you know want to put it all at once and you continue just to hustle all of that that's great but i think it's just a great perspective to see how um the brand sides of things works because there's a lot of other things beyond your control too no matter even whatever you're tasting someone on or whatever you're drinking it could be amazing but you know we were you and i were talking about costs earlier about you you're saying like yeah you know you could get three cases of this and it brings your price down. It's like sometimes those smaller houses, you know, need that love too. And it's a constant battle, but uh, they were, uh, I was blessed enough to have, you know, that brand job during the pandemic. They took really good care of the whole team during that time. And Mm -hmm. I got to see some of the, the off premise side of the liquor stores and kind of how that, like how those transactions and politics work, uh, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. And, and full disclosure too, I, I love the brand world and I love what Santa Teresa has done for my career and kind of where I'm, I'm at too. And I, I, I don't see myself can like brand world being all my thing. You know, I don't, I definitely, mm-hmm. again, as I mentioned before, like, you know, mentorship and, 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 you know, possible ownership of myself some down sometime down the road, but mm-hmm. I definitely love uh, the story behind Santa Teresa and I love their product and love their team and, all, all, all the stuff that they do. And so I'm, I'm pretty uh, happy to be continue to work for them. So it's great stuff. So, yeah. Is there um, a cocktail that you would recommend made with Santa Teresa if you wanted people to like yeah, dig yeah, into practice sure. with the spirit? For sure. Um, you know, not that I, again, I don't want to talk too much about stirred cocktails, but I think they definitely work <laughs> in like some foundational classics. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the branding behind Santa Teresa is pushing like, a rum old fashioned or rum Manhattan just simply because the rum itself, you know, I think rum as a category, um, most people, not most people, but there's a lot of people who think of it um, automatically think sweet because Mm -hmm. probably previous rum that they had, or, you know, I'm guilty of this myself of, of just having way too much Captain Morgan when I was in college. Yeah. I don't know why, you know, it's, but, uh, it's because of the stance, man. Right? He, just, he looks so <laughs> proud with his leg up on that rock. You're like, right? I want to be like you. I'm going to drink like this you. whole bottle. All I right. did the same thing with Sailor Jerry's. I was like, uh, I wish I had more Sailor Jerry tattoos. So I would just drink the bottle and exactly. hope that I'd like that one that appeared. I'm guilty of having a Sailor Jerry's tattoo. So I, I, I totally get where you're going from. Uh, yeah, me too. Right, right calf. Yeah, <laughs> right bicep. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, but no, it's like rum is a is an interesting, just like, you know, 
you got to think that a lot of these liqueurs and spirits are native to where the country is from. We talked about it literally already, but you know, in South America, rum is it. And it's important to think that like you go to each country and you try different products so the rum is drastically different. And some rum, you know, I could blind taste a lot of other people and rum could be like, you, you could be like, Oh no, this is, this is a rum. This is aged whiskey, or this is like mm-hmm. a nice, like, you know, you know, and it's, that's the same thing. It's like, so I use that as a framework for cocktails. You know, I use H rum, split basing, as we mentioned before. I'm doing like mm-hmm. a split based old fashioned or Manhattan as far as like a, a uh, framework and then kind of working from that. Also, Santa Teresa is great in like, you know, citrusy classics. You know, I love a Queen's Park Swizzle. I think that's my favorite, like, mm-hmm. refreshing style of rum drinks. Uh, so, I, you know, you got to use H rum there. I love that. Uh, you know, old Cubans are lovely as well with Santa Teresa. So, uh, kind of using those classical rum cocktails as frameworks and then kind of going from there is usually what I do, but, uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to walk through some of the steps in your career and share some of the insights you've had over the years, given what we've gone through as an industry over this whole pandemic, what do you think we need to preserve and what do you think we need to change to continue to grow? Um, I know I say this a million times, but we have to preserve mentorship. It is so important to teach others rather than, you know, show off or be the rock star. It's it, you bring others along with you, you know, grow together, grow as a unit, you know, like that's just, it, it could not be more important to educate the people around you. And it doesn't, everyone doesn't need to be 150 fully invested um, into hospitality. They could be doing this to pay through college. They could be doing this as the next step. Totally fine. But I feel like there's a feeling when you know someone just, it, this is like, it's a part of them. Hospitality is a part of them. And you can be able to kind of bring together what that is. So I just I feel like preserving that is the most important. And then remind me again, that what I, what I could change is what yeah, I Yeah, yeah. If you could, like, if you had like a, a magic wand, if you had sure. gone to Hogwarts, what would you, you know, change about the industry? Um, if there was one thing I could change about the industry is about... Um, Perhaps this uh, perspective of hierarchy and, um, you know, that could be aligned with my mentorship thing. But uh, I do believe, of course, there's structured positions that need to exist in a restaurant. I think you do need to have a general manager and managers and there needs to be a bar manager and all that stuff. But, you know, and I'm not trying to toot Monteverde's horn by any means, but again, we all the time there's collectively meetings and, and talking together and this round table way of thinking. And, and I just encourage that. So if that, that says destroy, you know, the, you know, the high, you know, the, the, the elevated elites on the above, then I'd say do it. I mean, I think that, you know, of course, like a growing point is for, you know, to grow your restaurant and bar. And I'm not saying no disrespect to any restaurant groups or bar groups out there. I mean, they, mm-hmm. They started somewhere and worked to where they're at, so I commend them for that. But I do think there are, and no names need to be needed, I think there are some corporate atmospheres out there that are, well, you know, great to just go to, but I think that there's some uh, structural issues that align in those corporate places that can definitely change as far as a perspective of hierarchy in your restaurant and bar. So uh, that's kind of where I would go with. I hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Richard is such a kind and insightful man. It was a pleasure to speak with him and learn from him on that episode. 
Next week, we have Laura Kelton, the co-founder of Support Staff, with their focus on mental health in the industry. This is an important episode. Don't take a week off. Come back and tune in. Also, if you like the show, we have beautiful t-shirts at yourwaywardmuse.com. And if you wish to put your product next to those gorgeous t-shirts or here on the podcast, you can reach out at yourwaywardmuse at gmail.com. All right, y'all. Stay good or bad, whatever you're into. I'll see you next week. Peace.